story seven months ago, Max and Donna brought forth upon their answering machine a new message, conceived in haste and dedicated to the proposition that if you do not leave a message, we cannot return your call. It is altogether fitting and proper that you should leave your name, telephone number, and the message after the beep, so that communications to the people, from the people, and between the people shall not perish from the phone system. And now, if you will excuse me, I am late for the theater. Welcome to a new season of Drinking with Lincoln on WNIJ, where we explore Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy through the eyes of the people who know him best, Lincoln presenters. Each episode, I'll sit down with our guest for a drink, maybe two, and get their take on America's most popular president. I'll also learn about the presenters themselves, where they come from, why they do what they do, what makes them Lincoln. I'm your host, Clint Cargow. I'm an author, historian, and professional Lincoln appreciator. And today, we kick off season two with a special episode, because we have not one, but two Lincolns, an Abe and Mary Lincoln duo who have been performing together for over 30 years. They are Max and Donna Daniels, better known as Abe and the Babe. That was their actual answering machine message that kicked off this episode. Max and Donna are former vice presidents of the Association of Lincoln Presenters, where Max is a past recipient of the Best Abraham Award, Mary is a past recipient of the Best Mary Award, and together they are past recipients of the Best Abraham and Mary Lincoln Team Award. Outside of the hundreds of appearances they make a year, they have made regular appearances in Springfield and on various television specials, and they have performed at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. They also wrote and star in their own two-person show, An Evening with Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln, which spans several periods of the Lincolns' life together, before and during their time in the White House. I believe that you could become President of the United States someday if you wanted to, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you, you just never give up on me, do you, Mary? Never. I have been super excited to sit down with Abe and the Babe because ever since I started this show, each Lincoln I interviewed asked me, have you interviewed Max and Donna Daniels yet? Because apparently... All Lincolns know Max and Donna, and all Lincolns love them. They have been doing this a long time, and not only are they just about the nicest folks you'll ever meet, but they welcome other Lincolns with open arms. They're wonderful people. I've learned so much from them. That's Laura Keyes, another Mary Lincoln presenter. It's just so generous. Their time, their talent that they have put into this profession of theirs. They're taking the time to share it with others. I know a number of other people can say the same thing, but uh, I truly felt a connection with them, and I was in a way honored that both of them, Donna in particular, gave me a lot of advice. She's even given me clothing. <laughs> We're actually featuring Laura in our next episode, where she reveals that she and some other Mary Lincolns have given Donna Daniels the nickname Icon. So Abe and the Babe, Max and Donna, they're the Lincolns Lincolns, mentors to the next generation of historical presenters. And even though they call themselves semi-retired, they still make over 100 appearances a year. I met up with them at the Chicagoland Civil War Collector Show in their hometown of Wheaton, Illinois. I was excited about this because even though I loved the Civil War era, I had never been to a Civil War Collector Show before. This was my first, and I was also excited to see on their website, chicagocivilwarshow.com, that Max was right there on the homepage, full Lincoln attire, perusing a table of collectibles. So my sound guy Spencer and I packed up and headed to Wheaton. We'll find out all about that and more on this episode of Drinking with Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. We found Abe and the Babe outside the show where they were standing under a tent, doing what they do best, entertaining guests, telling stories, and posing for pictures. I didn't want to interrupt, so I stepped over to some men in Civil War uniforms. They were members of Battery H, 1st Illinois Light Artillery. They stood watch outside because they were hired by event promoters to check weapons and weapons cases to make sure everything was on the up and up, and, most importantly, to make sure nothing was loaded. Their commander, John Matusik, shared information about their group, which gets people interested in the war and history and also organizes live fire competitions. He ran me through the unit's history, how they trained at Camp Douglas, fought at Shiloh, marched with Sherman to the sea. 
and he was about to tell me the difference between his unit and Civil War reenactors, he was insistent that they were not reenactors, when an issue arose with some gun cases that needed to be checked out. So I never got that explanation, but that's when the Lincolns were ready to head inside. People quickly approached them for pictures. I was excited to see event flyers on a nearby table depicting both Max and Donna. They're like the unofficial mascots of this event, which was organized by Irene and Bob Zerko. I asked Irene what it was like having Max and Donna at the show. We're always happy to see President Lincoln and Mrs. Lincoln. I never knew before how wonderful a sense of humor he has. I mean, he just had us stitched up a short while ago. The customers really enjoy him. They love to take pictures with him. He'll give the children pennies and they get all excited. It's like a living history lesson. That's what I can compare it to. So, Civil War era artifacts made up the bulk of the show. Currency, coins, jewelry, photos and letters. But there were also items from the Revolutionary War, Spanish-American War, and both World Wars. There was a lot of World War II. And there were also lots and lots of guns, vintage of course, and a surprising number of bayonets. If there's one constant for America's wars in the past 200 years, it's definitely bayonets. When Donna had a free moment, I caught her looking at some decorative jewelry on display. I was telling this lady that uh, years ago I saw her at this show and I've bought several pieces from her over the years. It's been a long time since I've seen you though, Pam. And Mr. President Lincoln came over and said, don't sell to <laughs> Her credit is not good. <laughs> then I was just telling, fine, I'll just charge it to the government. Yeah, perfect. It's good to see you again. Pamela Lynch has been selling authentic Civil War era jewelry for 30 years. She traveled to this show from Pennsylvania. She likes selling at Civil War shows because there are so few dealers who specialize in what she calls ladies things. I found out that Max and Donna are collectors themselves. I asked Donna what they collect and what they're still looking for. Busts, books, we bought a lot of books, uh, portraits. We really have not been very much into collecting any of the weapons or anything like that. Or for instance, over here there's canteens, things that are more for the military people. I keep an eye out for um, things from the medical profession because we have several friends who portray Civil War surgeons and that may be something that they are looking for. Someone over here has some medicine bottles that I'm thinking of calling our friend and saying, hey, you should come over here. I noticed Donna looking at these long, thin, decorative glass tubes. I have a program that I do about customs of mourning in Victorian America and things that were used like tear catchers and, or that fan over there, that black one is a mourning fan or the jewelry that I bought from Pam, mourning jewelry. These types of things I look for to uh, add to my collection for that program. So those glass tubes were tear catchers, allegedly used by Victorian women to catch tears shed for lost loved ones, or to preserve the tears a wife cried while her husband was off at battle. So when he got back, she could prove how much she missed him. I mean, Victorians, right? Anyway, I couldn't talk to Mary Lincoln for long. People wanted their picture taken with her. They wanted to tell her they were distantly related to her or to Abe. They wanted to share bits of obscure presidential history, like the fact that John Tyler, our 10th president, who was born in 1790, has two grandchildren still living today. If you don't believe me, just hit pause and go Google it. But Mary also received encouragement from many women. We don't get a lot of women here. We usually get the generals coming through and soldiers in Abe Lincoln, but we don't see very many women, so it's been a pleasure to see a woman come through. That's seller Dottie McKinney, who claims she's been a Lincoln buff since attending Abraham Lincoln Elementary School. She sells at these shows with her husband, who is a Winston Churchill buff. I tracked down Max as he finished taking a picture with another fan. Send that to my Gettysburg address. Oh, okay. So I wanted to know what Max collected, what he was looking for this day between handshakes and posing for selfies. Books, oil paintings, uh, a lot of busts and sculptures. As I say, at one time, I collected everything. If, if it was Lincoln, I took it. It um, made some good investments, made some bad ones, you know, typical. But at this stage, I have just about everything I need. I'm looking now to see what the prices on things are. So for the most part, I'm just interested in what's new on the market. I decided to grab a couple random people and find out what they were looking for. Stuff. <laughs> That's Jerry Yeager. I'm a hoarder by nature, what can I say? <laughs> I think most collectors are hoarders by nature. Then I met Marty Keller. 
a board member of the DuPage County Historical Museum. He's been coming to the show for over 20 years. He was looking for paper, old newspapers, posters, bills. He frames them and then donates them to the museum to be auctioned off at fundraisers. You come here and you just spend 20 bucks to get a newspaper and you frame it and people walk into your house and they go, is that real? And they're always stunned. But yes, yeah. that's, that, to me, that's the joy of it and the fun of it is you're kind of preserving history and at the same time, that's how they learn. So that was my first Civil War collector show. It was pretty cool, but there was one thing that did give me pause. I noticed that there were a lot of old photos of unidentified people, men, women, children, babies, even dogs. If no one's wearing a uniform, then they're fairly cheap. And I can't help but think that some of these pictures used to be prized possessions, maybe the only photo a family owned of a loved one. And now the names and the stories are lost, and they're being sold and swapped like trading cards. And I couldn't help but think that some of these pictures used to be prized possessions, maybe the only photo a family owned of a loved one. And now the names and the stories are lost, and they're being sold and swapped like trading cards. Anyway... That might just be my own personal hang-up, because there was a lot of cool stuff there. And it's not just about the artifacts. There was a, a cool sense of camaraderie to the place. Old friends coming together, new friends bonding over their love of history. And then, as Donna explains it, there's the connection to the history itself. I think I was starting to say before, with a lot of these things that have provenance all the way back to that time, just to be able to touch them sometimes, you almost feel a connection sometimes to the people who originally used them or a lot of these dealers have letters that were written by soldiers or their families to them. And you kind of feel a connection with the people who wrote those words. Right. You know something else that connects you to history? Authentic period music, as performed by David Corbett and Jim Schranz of the Battlefield Balladeers. Yes, we'll rally round the flag, boys, we'll rally once again. Shouting the battle cry of freedom. Rally from the hillside, gather from the plain. Shouting the battle cry of freedom. And now it's time to leave the Chicagoland Civil War Collector Show and make our way to Dry City Brewworks in downtown Wheaton so we can get to know Max Daniels, the man behind the beard, and Donna Daniels, the woman beneath the bonnet. Rally once again, shouting the battle cry of freedom. Hey, I'm Peter Medlin. I'm host of another WNIJ podcast, Teacher's Lounge. We bring you stories of education from around Illinois and in-depth conversations with local educators brought to us by you, the listener. Here's a little taste. Well, I got into singing because of the job and because of my first student. I see um, my role in education as a ministry. You would be, you know, in the hallway in the middle of the night at like one o'clock kind of sharing stories. You can subscribe to our show and listen to it wherever you're listening to Drinking with Lincoln right now. Hey, last episode we were even at a brewery too, talking to a biology teacher who moonlights as a brewmaster. But enough of me, let's get back to the show. Dry City Brewworks is celebrating its fifth anniversary. Owners Ben and Jessica Sampson opened their doors in downtown Wheaton in 2014 after a successful Kickstarter campaign. We met with manager and brewer Oliver Bully, who was enthusiastic about having the Lincolns drop in. I always like some history with my beer, and Dry City provided. First of all, the name, Dry City Brewworks. It comes from the fact Wheaton was a dry city from 1887 to 1985. They were dry before Prohibition, and they were dry long after Prohibition. Nearly a century of no alcohol sales. So I found it fitting to take Lincoln, supposedly our nation's driest president, to a brewery in what used to be Illinois' driest city. Also, Dry City has a black IPA called County Seat Heist. Wheaton is in DuPage County, so Drinking with Lincoln listeners already know the story behind that beer. And if you don't, head back to episode 4 with Lincoln presenter Michael Krebs. The County Seat Heist story is at the end. It's a good one. So Oliver pours me a County Seat Heist. Spencer gets an Octonaut, which is an Oktoberfest Amber Ale. That's right, an Oktoberfest Ale, not your typical lager. And Max and Donna, well, as with the real Lincolns, they don't drink beer. 
But never fear, because Dry City also whips up their own specialty craft soft drinks. So Oliver pours the Lincoln's two lemon ginger sodas. We find a cozy corner in the long front room where Dry City hosts live music every weekend, and then we're off. I was born and raised in the South. I, I'm actually from a little place called Sweet Gum Ridge, Alabama. No longer there? It, it's no longer there. The nearest town with a hard road, as I call it, is a little town called Geneva. It's down by the Florida line. You could actually walk from Geneva to Florida. But um, my dad worked for the railroad, and we moved to central Florida when I was probably nine or 10 years old. So I actually grew up in central Florida. So my roots are definitely Southern. I grew up in a little place called Wachula, Florida, which again is in the middle of nowhere. The only two occupations were citrus and cattle. So I grew up in farming. In rural Florida. In rural Florida. We always joke that we can't take him back home looking like this because he'd have to fight his way in or fight his way out. Yeah, (laughs) uh, I joined the Air Force when I got out of high school and- uh, Ended up here. Ended up here. And what did you do after you got out of the Air Force? Uh, I worked for several companies and finally wound up working for DuPage Central Federal Bank here in Wheaton. And in 1994, we were, we were brought out by ABM AMRO, and they assured us that all the jobs were taken, or all... Were no, safe. They were, were all safe. safe. Six months later, they called us in and said, your services are no longer required. And by that time, we had been doing the Lincoln since 1988. We're gaining a little experience and a bit of a reputation. A good reputation. Good reputation. Uh, <laughs> and we decided, let's see if we can make a living doing what she's always wanted to do, and that's be an actress. And I've always said that being self-employed is like getting married. It is the most exciting, terrifying thing you will ever do. (laughs) But um, we took off, and since 1994, this is... Been what we do for a living. This is our livelihood. This is how we pay the mortgage. This is how we put groceries on the table. (laughs) This is... If anyone had told us that was possible, 30 years ago, we'd have thought they'd been out in the sun too long. Or drinking the cooking sherry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, Donna, let's move over to you. Where are you originally from? My folks live out in Aurora, Illinois. That's where I was, well, I was born in Elmhurst, but they moved out. The only house I ever knew was out in Aurora. Graduated from Batavia High School. Frankly, never been too much outside the state of Illinois all my life until I met this guy. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you two meet? We met very cute. Uh, We were both members of a local theater, community theater group, and we were cast in a play together. And at the end of the play, his character won the hand of my character. And by that, (laughs) by the end of the run, we, we discovered that we worked very well together on stage and we had good chemistry off stage as well. And life imitates art. So we, uh, (sighs) so we got married in 1984. People sometimes ask, did we meet each other when we were the Lincolns? I said, no, we were together much before that. But we got started portraying the Lincolns because of our involvement in theater. There was a theater group down in Aurora called Riverfront Playhouse. And someone there had written a melodrama set during the Civil War that required an Abraham Lincoln to come in at the end and save the day, I think literally from a sawmill, if I remember correctly. And, of course, when he walked in, the director's eyes lit up because he's the right height, had the dark hair, a beard, and a mustache at the time. He was always getting cast in parts like the judge or the doctor or the cowboy, but when we walked into the audition for this thing, of course he got the part. Max, how tall are you? I'm not quite 6'3". I I usually say I'm 6'2 and a half, so I'm still inch and a half, almost two inches too short. But as I always laughingly say, I'll never measure up to him anyway, so... But in his time, 6'4 was literally a giant. Most men were 5'7, 5'8. Although in the state of Illinois, at his time, there was a a group of nine state legislators who were all over six foot tall. And in Illinois history, they're referred to as the Long Nine. And they're actually the ones who were very instrumental in getting the state capital move from Vandalia over to Springfield. We almost had the new state capital move to Alton except for the influence of the Long Nine. But as Lincoln said, we hoped it was the validity of our argument, not the length of our legs. <laughs> Before you played Lincoln for the first time, had anyone ever remarked about your resemblance to Lincoln? 
No, because I, I had shoulder-length hair. I looked more like a biker than, than Lincoln. There was no, to me, there was no resemblance whatsoever. It was only after the, the cutting off the hair and... We had to shave his mustache off, but that's really about all we had to do to him. What little resemblance I think I have began to appear. But no, I would never have... I didn't see it until I auditioned for the play, so... And when you did the play, did you do any kind of preparation as far as researching Lincoln's voice or anything like that? No, it's, I only had like maybe 10 lines for the whole play. I came at the very end and I think I hit the villain and said several things and turned off the sawmill. And that was it. That was, <laughs> and literally thought, that's all, you know, it was like three weekends. I figured, well, you know, it'll all grow back out. And, uh, On to the next part. But one thing kind of led to another and another and another. Someone who saw him in the play approached him and asked to come take part in an historical pageant that they were doing. Aurora was having their sesquicentennial, and uh, apparently the mayor had seen it, or his wife had seen it. I think his wife had seen it. She goes, we need you to to come and do some things for us because Lincoln was actually involved in some very uh, important cases in Aurora. So I said, okay. So... I did a couple of small things for Aurora during her sesquicentennial. And from that led to a speech and a parade and her getting dressed up and then... And took off. (laughs) About the fifth or sixth thing you got invited to, someone finally said, oh, and could your wife come as Mary? So we were just borrowing costumes from the theater group to show up to look like these people. Is that something you had thought about doing before? No, not at all. Um, we discovered that when you show up someplace looking like this, people start asking you questions. And at the time, we did not know the answers. He at least has a valid excuse. He was born and raised in the South, but I lived in the land of Lincoln all my life, and I didn't know how many children he had. None of the questions that we were being asked did we know the answers to. And we thought, well, if we're going to continue doing this and not look too foolish, maybe we should do our homework. What did you do to prepare? We started collecting books, just reading everything we could find. You know, we went looking for the answers to the questions that we were most frequently being asked. That's all we wanted at first. You know, how many children? How old was he when he died? You know, what was her maiden? Any, any of this stuff. But it turned into neat stuff we found out while I was looking up something else. You know, how many children did he have? Four. Three of them died. What happened to the last one? It's just kind of spreading out like ripples on a pond. And fortunately, we have a very dear friend of ours who has passed away. His name was Tom Dibba, who was a professor down at Benedictine University. He was a great Lincoln scholar. And he said, okay, here are some books that would be very beneficial. You know, sort of point us in the right direction of what books to trust and what not to take with a grain of salt. And you still want to read everything, but you have to know what's good and what's garbage. And with that little bit of knowledge, we started studying and uh, we, we originally had a three-bedroom home. Now we have a one-bedroom, a library, and an office, <laughs> and probably about thousand books on weekend. I've not actually read every page of every book. I will admit that, but I've read most of them just to get a feel for the different points of view. And then uh, one day we were sitting on the living room floor, surrounded by books and papers, with whatever we were looking up. And we looked at each other and we said, we're both actors, we have all of this wonderful material here, wouldn't it make a good script? So that's when we wrote Evening with Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln and uh, looking for a venue that we could rent to present our play is how we got involved in Civil War reenacting. And I thought, you know, this play is a good way to teach history, maybe we could do this in some schools, but the schools that were contacting us were elementary schools. So we had to develop something shorter and more you know, fun for kindergartners, you know, and it just has developed into something that we never, never would have dreamed of. What type of program do you develop for a kindergartner? We talk about Lincoln fun trivia things, you know, what growing up in a log cabin, you know, how, and with no electricity. What, no refrigerator? No microwave? No TV? No Nintendo game? Uh, what kind of chores he had to do? What kind of games he could play? We let him pull on the beard to make sure that it's real. We were at this one school, and we get to the point where we have a child come up from the audience to pull on the beard to make sure it's real. And there was this one little cherubic-looking child sitting next to the teacher, face of an angel. So we called on the little boy to come up to pull on the beard to see if it's real. Put both hands in the beard and 
pulled himself up off the floor. And we learned, never call on the child sitting next to the teacher. There is a reason that child is sitting there. <laughs> Do not ask that child. So you said you started doing the play, mm -hmm. and then you were starting to get invited to schools and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. How did the career progress from there? Several people helped us. There was a, a Lincoln presenter here in the Chicago area about the time that we were realized that this was something that we could do, but we weren't really sure how to do it. But there was a, a gentleman in the area named Jim Getty, and he had been a history teacher or music, music teacher, music teacher in Naperville. And he had grown a beard one summer just for the heck of it, and people started telling him he looked like Abraham Lincoln. And so he had started portraying Lincoln around here. Then he, he moved to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And, but he was still getting calls from places around here, and he was generous enough to say, you know, I'm here in Pennsylvania now, but I hear there's this gentleman named Max Daniels still in the Naperville area, you call him. So Jim was very generous in that respect. There were a couple of showcases here in the Chicago area. Chair people from the schools would go to these things to try and find artists and programs to bring to their schools. And we got quite a bit of work at the schools from those showcases. And then a lot of it became word of mouth advertising. Someone who saw us at their parade or their church group would get our card and take that back to the person at their school. And it exploded. I think our first year we had 27 yeah. appearances. The next year we had like 127. You know, and then especially after we went full time with it and we were able to devote more time. Because when we first started out, we had to take time off from work, use vacation day, or he would take his lunch hour. I literally changed in the work van. I, I had a work van mm -hmm. and I kept my Lincoln outfit. And I, I'd get to the school, <laughs> change clothes, go inside, do the program, come back outside. <laughs> and then when we were able to go full time with them, then of course uh, we did more and more and more. There were a couple of years where we did 250 or 260 appearances wow. in a year. Now, was that mostly in this region, northern Illinois, or were you going to other states? We too? were traveling the Midwest at that point. Okay. Most of our stuff was here in Illinois, but we did things in Wisconsin and Iowa and Indiana, Minnesota. We did a couple things in Missouri. We went to Ohio once. We were all over the place. There was one February where we did 60 appearances in February. The commercial that you see all the time of, you know, the, the rock bands going, hello, Detroit, and we're in Buffalo. Oh, you know, <laughs> what, town are, what town are we in? Yeah, it kind of got to be like that, and we decided that uh, that, that was not good for us. Mm -hmm. The good thing that we, did, that we did discover is it's not only February. We discovered a lot of schools didn't want us necessarily to come in February for Lincoln's birthday. They wanted us to come in the spring when they were teaching the Civil War or in the fall when they were getting ready to go to Springfield on a class trip. And then once we found out about Civil War reenactments, then almost every weekend in the summer from the end of April to the end of October, we were on the road somewhere at a Civil War reenactment. It, it became kind of a... Uh, nomadic existence there for a while. I remember we were uh, once we were out in Kansas for an event and we were being interviewed and the the reporter said so Mrs. Lincoln where do you call home? I said a blue Ford Explorer because <laughs> we were just on the road all the time. It sounds very romantic and glamorous you know at first but then after a while it's like I just want to go home and sleep in my own bed. <laughs> When did you both get involved with the ALP, or the Association of Lincoln Presenters? Early on, uh, we were contacted by a guy from New Jersey named Dan Bassick. We didn't know him. His sister lived in Oak Park, and yes. he was in town visiting her. And somehow or other, while he was here in the Chicago area, he had heard about us and contacted us. And this is what he wanted to do, is to, to set up this association to locate everyone in the country who portrayed Abraham Lincoln. And we were one of the first that he had found. And so he asked us to help. And we said, sure. So, so we, we were, were the first, first vice, vice presidents. <laughs> <laughs> was, was he a portrayer as well? Yes. Okay. Dan was 5'7". And he was not much taller than I am. Speaks with a New Jersey accent. <laughs> I think somebody described his voice, he has a voice that begs for a bagel. And he had two life-size puppets, I guess, uh, Mary and Tad, 
but he says, I'm the Lincoln for the little people. And he was tireless. He was the driving force behind getting the ALP started. But we were very honored that he asked us to take part in his effort to do that. And I think at last count, they've located something like 150 Abraham Lincolns across the country. At the time, when we first joined, there were only like four couples in the entire country who portrayed, portrayed Abraham and Mary together. So we, we were one of the first to do that. But we must have started something because the last convention that we attended, I think there were probably a dozen couples. And there are even some Marys now who portray her by herself and they don't have an Abraham. And I always say, my bonnet's off to them because mm-hmm. they have, to use an expression, a, a harder road to hoe. It's harder for them to get their foot in the door without an Abraham. You know, I fully acknowledge that he's the, the star performer here. He's, he's the selling card. I'm the bonus. A big bonus. <laughs> <laughs> We're Abe and the Babe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the reenactors started calling us Abe and the Babe years ago, and it just kind of stuck. <laughs> That's how you decided to market yourselves? The reenactors started calling us that first, and then when we were looking for an email address and a website address, it just kind of seemed the natural thing to do. Um, Although some of the reenact or some of the presenters go, that's... It's, it's just, not dignified that's enough. That's very dignified. But we figure, well, for one thing, it sets us apart a little bit, and it shows that we have a sense of humor about ourselves. We take what we do seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. Not going to take myself seriously. I do, I do take Lincoln seriously, I admit that, but I don't, right. I'm never going to get out of this world alive, so I'm going to laugh while I'm here. <laughs> how has being the Lincolns affected friends, family? Like, how have they reacted to you being oh. the Lincolns? My mom loves to tell people that she is Abraham Lincoln's mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we first started out, our kids were teenagers. And the fact that we were doing this just mortified them. Oh, my God. When, when you would take Trista to school? Yeah, I'd take her to school. She says, drop me off a couple of blocks off. Says, I'll walk. I go, okay, fine. That's, that's where you want to be. But you weren't in the Lincoln outfit. Was it no, just beard or just, no, I mean, or just because you were the dad? Just, just because he <laughs> looks like Lincoln even okay. when he's in jeans okay. and T-shirt. And then what's funny, of course, then when she got married and she had children, it suddenly... Could you come to Oriana's school? <laughs> she wanted us to come and do programs at her kids' schools. Mm-hmm. Our, and Tim did that, too. Our son did that, too. Did you take part in the C-SPAN program that they did when they did the, uh, they did the reenactments? Debates. The, the debates? Did yeah, you take part I did. I did Ottawa. We had been doing the Ottawa debate on a, I call it Reader's Digest version, uh, for a couple of years before that. Jim Gaines, the Douglas uh, there, me and him had both... The whole thing was an hour between me and Jim. So C-SPAN basically called all the seven cities and says, we'd like to come and, and, and do it, but we'll leave everything else up to you. So all the cities got to depict their own Lincolns and Douglas and things. And so they contacted me and Jim and said, we'd like for you to do it. I said, I really would like to. I said, but Lincoln was clean shaven in 58. I said, so if you want to, I said, we can find a, a Lincoln that uh, is clean shaven for this. Oh no, no, we want you. I go, no, I, well, first of all, I can't afford to, to shave because I have too many appearances. No, we'll just have you with a beard. I'm going, but historically <laughs> that's not right. They said, we don't care. And, no, and basically no. their essence says, <laughs> we don't care. We want you and Jim to do it. And so that's how I got to do Lincoln with a beard when historically he didn't have a beard. So you did the full, the actual entire... The yes. entire. And at Ottawa, Douglas spoke for an hour. I got to speak for an hour and a half. And then he got a 30-minute rejoinder. And at the end of the three hours, depending on who you talk to, Douglas had beat him so soundly that Lincoln almost fainted and fell off the stage. Or Lincoln's friends were so excited he almost got... Carried off in triumph. Carried, carried off in triumph. That, uh, <laughs> what was something significant that came out of the Ottawa debate? Lincoln was never an abolitionist, although that's what Douglas kept saying, but Lincoln was always just anti-slavery. He always thought that the states had control over what you call domestic institutions, and that included the institution of slavery. His only objection was the expansion of slavery in federal territories prior to them becoming a state. 
And, and that was one of the big issues at the Ottawa debate. Yeah, and one of the questions that Douglas asked him was, if you were a senator and the question came up when a state issued its constitution and slavery was included in that, would you approve the constitution? And Lincoln had to be careful how he answered it. But when he actually answered, he said, was, I'd have to answer it, yes, as much as I hate the institution, the state has the right, if by some miracle they wanted slavery, I would have to approve it. Right. Some of his people who were more abolitionist type than he was didn't like his answer. But Lincoln was basically saying the Constitution doesn't give the senator the right to vote the way he wants to. He has to vote the way the Constitution insists that he vote. Do each of you have your own favorite anecdotes about Abraham Lincoln? Is there a story about Abraham Lincoln that's always just stuck out as something you mm. you liked about him, or, or Mary Lincoln? Oh gosh. So much of Mary's life is tragic. I don't usually portray her after the war, although I have a one-woman show that I do that addresses her widowhood in the last 17 years of her life. But there's not usually very many happy stories there. The one that I, I enjoy is in the play, we talk about how they met at the dance, and he comes up to her and he says, Miss Todd, I would like to dance with you in just about the worst way. Then I, I tell the audience, and being a well-bred young lady, of course, I accommodated him, but, and I had to tell my sisters later on that he certainly did dance in the worst way, stepped all over my feet. <laughs> But especially when we're talking to, to children in schools about it, I hasten to point out to the young ladies that I look beyond the fact that he stepped on my feet and wasn't that handsome and didn't have a lot of money to two things that I felt were much more important, what was in his heart and what was in his mind. I use that as sort of kind of a, a teaching moment to say I waited to get married until I was 23 years old when most girls where I came from were getting married at 16. I didn't say yes to the first man who asked me. I waited for the right man to ask me. I don't know if that sinks into them or not, but, you know, it's worth putting out there. This is one that sort of stuck in my mind. It, we all talk, talk about the Emancipation Proclamation and what a great step forward it was. But today, when the president does something, there's all this falderaw. He, you know, it's a, everybody here and... Six different pens and, to and sign his name. Lincoln finally got the final draft of the Emancipation Proclamation written the night before. The next day he spent mostly in the executive mansion shaking hands, which was the custom, the New Year's Day celebrations. But late that afternoon, with absolutely no fanfare, matter of fact, very few people actually witnessed when he signed probably the most important document, or one of the most important documents in American history. The, the simplicity of, of the gesture is he, he finished shaking probably a thousand hands. His hand was extremely swollen. Apparently he picked up the pen and it started to, to tremble. And according to Nicolay and Hay in, in their biography, said he put the pen down and he says, my hand must not tremble. He says, I do not want future generations to think that I had any hesitation in signing this. And with that simple gesture, he picked up the pen and signed. He usually just put a Lincoln, which was, but on the Emancipation Proclamation, he signed it Abraham Lincoln. But he did it without any fanfare. What he was doing was taking a, a giant step in our equality, but he did it with such humility. It, it just, he never made any grand to-do about his presidency. He, he had a job to do, and despite all the slings and arrows that were fired at him on both sides, uh, there were people who thought he was going too fast and people who thought he was going too slow. He stayed focused on what he had to get done. And that was, one, preserve the Union. And then, yeah, later on, when he saw the opportunity to end slavery, late in 64 and 65, that's when he struck. But sadly, of course, he 
he never got to see the 13th Amendment ratified. He was born, raised, and sadly passed away in a nation where slavery was still legal. It, and it's hard for any reenactor, and especially people who portray Lincoln, because we want to do all the big speeches. But to me, it, it's his quiet dignity that if he left his own devices, he would just sit and not talk to anybody, <laughs> which made him look sometimes to be antisocial. But he wasn't. He was just, just keeping his own counsel. He wasn't, someone said, he will only tell you what you need to know and tell you what you need to know, and he'll tell him what he needs to know, and none of you really know what he knows. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's the way he had to, to do things. I just wish that our public servants of today, not only the president, would understand what a great human being that we had in our 16th president. A lot of them quote him. I've often said I wish they would stop quoting him and start emulating him. <laughs> okay, I'll get off <laughs> start, my... Start behaving okay. like him. One of the things that I enjoy about portraying Mary Lincoln, mm -hmm. and, and I think uh, a lot of the other Marys feel the same way, is that we have an opportunity to rehabilitate her reputation. It happened to me today at the show. Some guy came up to me and said something to me about being crazy or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or they always ask me, how come you're not acting crazy? I says, because that's not the only thing about her, you know. Right. The insanity proceedings didn't happen until late in her life, and most of the time they're not aware of all of the things that happened to her that might have caused her to get that way. And I appreciate the opportunity to sort of tell her side of the story. In fact, my show is, is entitled My Side of the Story. The best reaction I've ever gotten from people is when they say, oh my God, I never knew all that happened to her. No wonder she went around the bend, I would have too. And I said, that's the best thing that she and I can ask for is put yourself in her place. She was certainly not the only woman in America to have lost husband and children, but how do you think you would have responded? You know, be a little understanding. And I said, yeah, I did things that I shouldn't have, that I was embarrassed about later on. How many of you has that never happened to? <laughs> she was also very intelligent, very well-educated, came from a very well-to-do family. She was a very good partner to Abraham Lincoln to you know, help him achieve as much as he did. Mm -hmm. Too many of the biographers, I think, want to make it look like he's, he became so successful in spite of her instead of with her help. And I and, and the other Marys, we appreciate the opportunity to portray her as you know, more of a human being than this caricature that she sometimes has become. You've had over a 30-year career as Ava and Mary. What is something you're most proud of? The thing that I'm most proud of is um, the impact that we've been able to have on children and students. He has sort of a tradition at a, a number of events for a number of years. Every year, the same families would come to the reenactment events, and they had their children take a picture with the president. And there's, there's some families, he started taking pictures with their children when they were babies. And he was still taking pictures with them when they were 21 and going off to college. And one lady sent us uh, a Christmas card one year. She says, you know, my son grew up loving history and loving Lincoln because he met him in you. And she says, I, I don't know how many other children may have grown up you know, with that same experience. And that, I think, if you're looking for a legacy to leave behind, that's certainly a good one. Um, we had teachers contact us and say, I remember when I was a student in high school and I remember when you came and did a presentation for us. I'm a teacher now and I would like you to come and speak to my students. And to have inspired someone is extremely humbling and gratifying. That's the neat thing about being able to do what we do is being able to use this vehicle to excite a child about history or you know whatever they're passionate about but to ignite that fire is really cool <laughs> you're talking about you know the thing you're most proud of i mean we've got a, awards coming out the ears but uh, but it's it's the it's the look on a child's face you know when mm -hmm. they first see lincoln and we have a school we've been doing for 22 years now glencoe glencoe and i always kid him i'm going one of these days, 
one of our early students is going to come back as a teacher, <laughs> and it turns out year before last it happened. Oh, yeah. Because I remember sitting here as a first grader. As a first grader. Yeah. Since we've been doing this too long, man. <laughs> I'm going. <laughs> Holy cow. I was told by Laura Keyes, <laughs> who presents um, Mary Lincoln. Mary. She said that you once told her a story about meeting a Native American veteran. That's, that's all she told me. And she said, <laughs> I have to ask you about this story. So, what is that story? This is very cool, uh, this, too. Pipestone, Minnesota has an event every other year. Pipestone, Minnesota is also the area where the Mankato Massacre took place. I need to cut in here to provide a little backstory. And this is going to be like a one minute version of a very complicated story. But Max is talking about the Mankato Massacre, the largest mass execution in American history, at which 38 Native Americans were hung in Mankato, Minnesota, for their role in the deadly Dakota War of 1862. Now, the Dakota War broke out because of a long-running dispute between the Dakota Indians and the U.S. government, who had, as was tradition, broken several treaties. The government failed to make payments for land it had purchased. It did nothing to stop encroaching settlers, and many of the settlers trading with the Indians were clearly taking advantage of them. So things eventually boiled over, and the Dakotas took advantage of the fact that many of the young men were all fighting the Civil War, and they attacked several settlements. Over a period of about eight weeks, Dakota War parties murdered an estimated 600 to 800 white settlers, most of them unarmed women and children. Lincoln, hesitant to send troops because of the war, finally sent General John Pope to lead several volunteer divisions against the Dakotas. Pope, by the way, wanted to massacre all of them, but eventually the Dakotas surrendered. 392 were put on trial, 303 were sentenced to death. When Lincoln heard the news, he sent a telegraph to Pope, asking for the transcripts on all 303 condemned prisoners. He ordered that there would be no executions until he had reviewed each transcript personally. He was visited by the Episcopal Bishop of Minnesota, Henry Whipple, who begged him to offer leniency. He received word from General Pope that he must execute all 303 or witness mass outbreaks of violence from whites seeking revenge. So I took the time, took each of the defendants and read the charges and determined if, in fact, it was worthy of a death sentence. I got it down to 34 out of the 300 and something. And uh, that was the number that was executed, which the people who were so angered claimed, well, Lincoln oversaw the execution. The largest number largest of execution were... were executed by Lincoln. Mm-hmm. They're right. But I or... also preserved the lives of these others. Anyway, Pipestone has this thing, and they said, we need you to make about a 20-minute speech about, about the Mankato Massacre. You're not going to make both sides happy. So I made a very mealy mouth thing that... No, it wasn't mealy mouth, but it was even-handed. Okay, I, I didn't make either side happy, and I, but I didn't make either side mad, which was the other side. But I'm coming back up the hill, and up at the top of the hill... There's a a gentleman sitting up there, he's sitting in a wheelchair, both legs amputated. Old beat up fatigue coat, a Vietnam veteran hat on, and he looked the worst for the wear. I mean, he really looked, and I was in the military during the Vietnam War, and so I have an affinity for for veterans. So I walked over and uh, I put my hand on his shoulder, and as I often do, I said, thank you for your service. And he says, no, thank you, which caught me off guard. And uh, He says, thank you for, I think he said, thank you for number 37, which obviously I had no idea. Apparently his great-great-grandfather, I had pardoned from being executed. He was also a master carver at the Pipestone National Museum. Only full-blooded Native Americans are allowed to even work there. The Pipestone is a very soft almost a clay-like stone used for just making pipes, peace pipes. Peace pipes. And he's a master carver. But if it had not been for Lincoln looking at each one individually... Instead of just wholesale signing off on it. His grandfather would have been executed, but because Lincoln took the time and to look look into the eyes of a great-grandson, it's more than a reenactor moment. It's a... It's it's hard to explain the the emotions 
although I'm only portraying Lincoln, but here's a man who... Would not be there except it's, what Lincoln did. And every time I think about it, I can see the look on this, this man's face that his, his admiration for Lincoln was just so strong that, that I felt humbled <laughs> just to be portraying him. That's an amazing story. It just it is. But that's that's the one Laura's talking about. <laughs> it's Yeah, that was a yeah, very cool moment. I, I think we should end on that story. I think that's, that's <laughs> it's beautiful. Here's to drinking with Abraham and Mary Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> Good night and God bless. <laughs> very thought provoking stuff. Things I don't you don't think Thank you for listening to the Drinking with Lincoln podcast. And thanks to Max and Donna Daniels for sitting down with us. To find out more about Abe and the Babe, visit their website, abeandthebabe.com. Thank you to Bob and Irene Zirko and the Chicagoland Civil War Collector Show. Also David Corbett and Jim Schranz of the Battlefield Balladeers. And of course, Dry City Brewworks for sharing your space and your delicious beer. Our sound engineer is Spencer Tritt. Our theme music was provided by Mannequin Torso, recorded live on another WNIJ show, Sessions from Studio A. I'll drop a link to that performance in the show notes, which you can find at WNIJ.org. I'll also link to other information on the people and places you heard about in today's episode, so be sure to check those out. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, the NPR One app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And consider leaving us a review. And if there are any Lincoln topics you'd like us to cover, or Lincoln presenters you'd like us to interview, drop us a line at lincoln at niu.edu. This show was produced by WNIJ, Northern Public Radio, where you learn something new every day. Thanks for listening. Any number of people came up to us today at the show and said, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like to play? Or don't go to the theater. Oh, just thinking about the theater gives me a headache. Oh, come on, there's a new show coming into town. Everyone says you'll get a bang out of it. Oh, I hear these theater tickets. It won't kill you to go to the theater with me one time. Okay. And it just, you know, it's all the time, all the time.